You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show produced at my home for 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who have never ceded sovereignty. I pay my respects to elders past and present, and welcome all First Nations people listening today. This show is brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC, and today we'll talk about a proposed bill that's currently before the Senate that expands the powers of the Australian military in times of emergency. The Defence Legislation Amendment, bracket, Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergencies, end bracket, Bill 2020, has had little media coverage, despite concerns the bill would erode human rights and vastly expand government powers to use the military domestically. Activist and lawyer Kelly Tranter has been an outspoken critic of the proposed legislation. She says... This bill fails to properly define other emergencies, delegates too much responsibility for the call-out to a single minister, permits foreign armies and police forces to be called in, does not restrict the use of force for defence forces, and extends an unreasonable level of immunity for the defence force from criminal and civil penalties. In today's show, I speak with Dr. Bino Kabmak, academic and researcher in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University, who has a focus on civil liberties, international law and rights. I asked Dr. Kapmark to explain what the proposed legislation actually entails. Well, yes, of course, um, the thing with the Defence Legislation Amendment and, of course, in brackets, Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergencies Bill is one of those seemingly innocuous pieces of legislation that we tend to see from time to time and buried in it and buried in the detail is, of course, the trouble. See it essentially as a streamlining mechanism. In other words, streamlining the mechanism by which the Australian Defence Forces and Reserves would be called in to assist in dealing with emergencies. Now, the question, of course, is uh, what what is the nature of the emergency in question we're talking about? Supposedly, we're talking about natural disasters, but then it is very clear, according to the explanatory memorandum of the bill, that it, and to use its words, it will enhance defense's capacity to provide assistance in relation to natural disasters and other emergencies. And unfortunately, it doesn't leave those emergencies very clear. There is some suggestion that it might be civil strife and, and so forth, but that's sort of buried again in the second reading speech of the Assistant Defence Minister Alex Hawke. So it's worth noting that this bill has broad implications beyond the the seemingly benign wording of it. Mm. And there's been some concerns, I think, about the expansion of ministerial powers and kind of of, uh, lack of checks and balances on those powers. Well, yes. So the reality is that it's all based on good faith in terms of how ministers assess threats. So it's all based on advice that's given to the um, essentially the uh, governor general who can then declare the context of that emergency that then permits the deployment of extra forces or troops and so on. So there's no oversight here. 
There's no judicial oversight, for example, about the conditions. There's no requirement for, um, you know, any committee involvement. There's no, you know, involvement of parliament. It is very executive heavy, as it were, in terms of determining this. And it's also an unwarranted expansion in addition to what is already in place, which is the defense assistance to the civil community policy. So there's already the so-called DAC policy by which um, military assist, as it were, perhaps in certain civil operations or civilian operations, for example, bushfires, a natural disaster, and so on. But it is very clear that in this particular context, there is an, a broad and, I would argue, unnecessary enlargement of um, executive power. Mm. Um yeah, I think when we talked about this stuff, it makes me think of the military that was used up in um, First Nations and Northern Territories during the intervention in 2007. I'm wondering how this bill kind of changes um, the current or previous use, uses of military on Australian soil. Yes, well, it's a good contrast. I suppose there, there are certain similarities to it insofar as it is a domestic application of military in a civilian context, say, for example, maybe domestic violence, strife, and so on. But what is suggested in this, and I have no doubts that actually in the background of some of the drafters' minds, it's probably the Northern Territory intervention, the militarized intervention is probably very much a model as well, because it does, as it were, provide a template for the deployment of the military in these contexts. But the what is interesting, the backdrop to this even more than that, in addition to that, is the anticipation of future crises, because the Australian Defence Force, unlike the current Australian Prime Minister, is very aware about the potential for crises emerging, for example, from climate change. And so what is very interesting is that if you look at some of the defence reports and the uh, you know, you know, position papers and briefing papers and so on. What is interesting is that the ADF is actually under no illusions about the potential for future climate change chaos, as it were. And in fact, in one of its updates, um, it speaks, the Defense Department of Defense speaks about, of course, um, the impacts of the coronavirus um, pandemic, how this will affect um, stability, and then, of course, the prospect of um, matters such as climate change. So people in defense know that there is a particular response mechanism they may have to consider. So it's by no means unreasonable to suggest that this bill is going to, is part of this pattern and is going to be used uh, to make things smoother, as it were, you know, to euphemistically <laughs> use that term mm. to enable the use of uh, military in civilian matters. Mm. Yeah, and the idea of using climate change as the um, the pretext for as an emergency, I think it's different from other emergencies like bushfire season and things, which have a, a definite start and finish time. Whereas you can't, you can imagine climate change being something that's very ubiquitous across our whole society, and the timing is, you know, it's it's ongoing and. Yes, and, and you make a very good. That's a very good point, and because there's simply no. Um, end date and so on. There's no awareness about when it starts, stops and so on, uh, which makes legislation of this sort also dangerous because any emergency legislation by definition that doesn't have limits, that doesn't have defined boundaries is bad legislation and dangerous legislation. And that's the problem here. We've got open-ended commitments. We've got open-ended definitions about what a crisis would be. We've got open-ended 
uh, context as to deployment of uh, troops. And, and that is very troubling because it's simply too broad to be meaningful in any civil liberties sense. Mm. I think also um, there's talk of um, uh, immunity for military acting on Australian soil. Yes, uh, this is a very important part of the bill. Um, It actually suggests that in discharging their particular functions, so once individuals, maybe um, say ADF personnel, reservists and so on are called out, that in the context of actually discharging their functions, they will be given immunity. Now, any time the term immunity is used, that should be incredibly troubling because it immediately excludes the purview of the courts. That's the first thing. It also excludes the prospect that citizens can have enforceable claims in the event that their rights are violated and in the event that breaches take place. Um, and yes, you know, with heavy-handed use of force in instances like that, there should be some form of redress. But unfortunately, the the bill not only provides immunity for ADF personnel and and uh, reservists in the discharge of their functions, there's also another sinister element to it. It also provides immunity for foreign personnel, for foreign military forces, for foreign police forces. So that is also very peculiar in a sense. It's, it's very troubling that effectively blanket immunity is being provided across a range of forces in the use of this. So it's very clear that what is being envisaged here is a a broader involvement of the military across the board, including Australia's allies. And this, this I think, is also very troubling. Mm. Yeah, and I I think about the ADF and I realise it's it's not a neutral force. I mean, obviously, at the moment, there's um, members of the Australian Defence Force are under investigation for war crimes in Afghanistan. So it's not... Um, it's not a light thing to take away that right to um, follow criminal proceedings against military personnel oh, uh, undertaking uh, their duties. Yes, indeed, absolutely. I think it's a very important thing to have that particular chain, that particular context, because um, you know once that element is removed, then <clears throat> I mean it's a very clear statement in the bill that by doing that they want to enable a more muscular response to take place in response to these unspecified crises and so on, um, which is incredibly troubling. So this, it, it all has the air of, you know, punishing disobedience, civil disobedience or dissent and so on. And of course, uh, the drafters would vehemently disagree with me when I say that, but I think the whole context of using immunity, the whole context of giving immunity to foreign forces, the whole idea about having such an inadequate human rights statement uh, that gives no context about how public rights might be actually protected. And this this meaningless term about good faith, which is a useless yardstick, you know, so um, many of them might act in good faith in discharging terrible things, but that doesn't mean to say that there shouldn't be some kind of legal redress against the um, the army in this context. That's another really troubling feature of that too. That was Dr. Bino Kabmark, academic and researcher from RMIT University, speaking about the danger of introducing legislation that gives military personnel immunity from criminal proceedings. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR at my home in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across the stolen lands known as Australia through the Community Radio Network. 
In the next part of my interview with Dr. Kabak, we discuss the current state of civil liberties in Australia and the lack of laws to protect basic human rights here. You've compared the um, bill with changes to extradition laws in Australia, where kind of human rights protections are progressively eroded in order to streamline the process and make things easier. Do you think there's a general sort of move towards eroding civil liberties in Australia? Oh, absolutely. I, I think there's been a, um, ever since when we think about the broader picture, and I would argue it goes even further back, but let's consider the legislation and legislative instruments passed in the aftermath of uh, September 11th, 2001, of course, with the terrorist attacks in the United States. And uh, the Howard government was very busy, as it were, in the context of putting together legislation, beefing up the powers of the intelligence services, um, the interrogation powers, the police powers, and so forth, and essentially trying to streamline and cut, because that's always the word used, streamlining, making things easy, making detentions easier, making interrogations and holding people incommunicado easier. Uh, all of this from 2001, September 2001 onwards, and we see all these elements of legislation coming through that fulfill more or less the same theme and that is to say, to make prosecution easier, to make extradition easier, to make the deployment of force easier. All of these things are part of the same um, panorama of, um, um, you know, anti-rights. You know, that seems to be very much the theme of Australian governments. Uh, and I'm sad to say of, of all shades, it doesn't really matter whether it's been the coalition or Labour. Uh, over the course of period, there's been an accretion of power to the state and of course, this is all taking place with incredibly weak protections. There is only an implied right to freedom of communication on political subjects. This this very anemic right that's been read into the constitution by the Australian High Court, but is not personally enforceable against anybody. It cannot be used by you and I as citizens to hold officials to account in terms of, say, suppressing speech, suppressing views, suppressing dissent. Um, only as a restraint on legislative powers, only as a restraint on officials. It's not a personal right. And so with, mm. with the lack of Bill of Rights, with the lack of an instrument, a charter to deal with these sorts of things, uh, you know, polit politicians have really become emboldened with putting together these sorts of uh, instruments. And this is merely another, another instrument to add to that mix. Mm. And how do you think sort of the current state of civil liberties in Australia compares internationally? Like, is it? Oh, it's, it's um, you know, rather poor. Uh, I think it, th there's several things at play here. You know, one is the, the fact that the rights to protest are not enshrined. You know, there is a very, uh, shall we say, a very meek and a particular protection that is accepted at common law. But, of course, common law, um, this particular concept of judge-made law is susceptible to amendment and abolition by legislation. So in each state and territory, there are, of course, regulations and so on, um, permissive to a degree or rather about the right to assembly, but it's all very controlled and you cannot claim it to, to be any substantive in any way. It was this particular aspect was deployed at stages, of course, during the um, the COVID lockdowns and so on, where people were protesting, say, for Black Lives Matter and so on. And in some cases, actually, I was quite impressed. A few judges did, um, for example, in New South Wales and also in, in Queensland, they did consider uh, the role of lawful assembly as an important feature of the system. But apart from 
these mutterings on the bench from time to time by the courts and and so on. There is no protective framework of any considerable sense. We don't have a charter, as I said. Um, so there are abuses you know, that take place. There are you know authorities riding roughshod, and there's always this assumption at the end that we have to place our faith in the goodwill of enforcement and the goodwill of parliamentarians. And the whole point of having a protective veneer, such as a charter of human rights or a bill, is to make sure we have that in spite of these particular assurances given by authorities. Mm. So that's what you would like to see, a Charter of Human Rights for Australia? Uh, absolutely. I've always found it baffling and fascinating that uh, there's such a hostility in Australia to it by by people across the political spectrum. It's actually astonishingly you know, difficult to get that across. And I think a lot of it is based on this notion that um, a Bill of Rights is supposedly a, a restraint on parliamentary supremacy, well, where there should be. I mean, in some cases, it's very mm. good to have restraint on, um, you know, aggressive majorities and to protect minorities and to protect other groups of individuals. And that's the whole point of civil liberties, is that you have these protective mechanisms in place to restrain overzealous policing, to restrain overzealous control by the state. And uh, Australia has put its faith in these vague prescriptions of liberty, which are found in the common law, but very little in terms of the constitution and in terms of state legislatures and so on. Mm. Thank you for your time and to shine a bit of a light on this dark spot in the um, current proposed laws for Australia and the kind of scary um, patterns that you say have been emerging um, for civil liberties across this country. Well, no, it's it's, it's a pleasure to uh, to provide a, a gloomy insight, as it were, <laughs> into this situation. But uh, notwithstanding though that fact, it's very good that you are discussing these points, and hopefully there'll be a greater discussion across the board, and certainly um, a, you know a greater appraisal on the part of Australia's politicians and parliamentarians broadly as to how serious this is, because I think at this point they they're treating it essentially as a benign accretion of power, just a, a matter of bookkeeping and, and adjusting procedures to make personnel, military personnel, more effective. But by doing that, you need protections. And this, it's not evident that this bill is that. If anything, this bill um, actually removes many, many protections uh, in terms of dealing with its, uh, its objective, as it were. That was Dr. Bino Kabmark, academic and researcher from RMIT University. Next, I spoke with Bert Blackburn, Executive Committee Member of the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament. I asked what his group thinks of the proposed legislation. Well, look, uh, there's a fair bit of alarm. Um, As it stands, the Defence Minister, after consulting with the Prime Minister, can unilaterally call out the Defence Forces and involve foreign troops and foreign police to to address an Australian emergency. And Mm. what worries us, I see is that the emergency is undefined but could conceivably include using those forces to suppress industrial action like strike action or some other action by unions or, or protests such as those concerning climate change or against uh, you, uh, you know, mining for uranium or something like that. Mm-hmm. There seems to have been sort of very little discussion about this or outcry. What, what has your group done sort of in response to it? Well, we've made a submission to the um, to, to the special uh, committee of inquiry that's looking at it. Um, mm. And look, can I, I'm not surprised that you say that because 
uh, it was, it's been a fairly streamlined process. It was introduced on September the 3rd into the federal parliament and it passed the initial reading with limited opposition or amendment in the House of Representatives. And it's, it's uh, now to come up before the Senate and part of that process is uh, we're putting a submission uh, about the, our concerns about the bill. So it has gone through, they've tried to streamline it and rush it through. Part of the situation is that they claim that they need it in place for the bushfire season. Mm. Yeah, and I guess there's been part bipartisan support, so there's not much of a league to sort of or a place to grip onto to get that opposition through yeah. in the parliamentary system. Look, there were some, some uh, questions raised. I must say the federal member for Warringah, uh, Ch- uh, Staley Steggles, uh, stated in Parliament, I'd like to quote her if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. A defence force should never be used for quashing internal protests or the exercise of democratic rights. And she goes on, we've seen a dangerous rise in authoritarian responses to civil protests around the world and in many neighbouring nations. Some months ago, the Prime Minister himself spoke words that I found concerning in relation to the right to protest, especially around environmental issues. It would be concerning if there were any intention to use these measures in the amendment for something that was in fact quashing democratic rights. Now, we think the member for Warringah is correct. It's particularly mm. worrying as it suggests a lack of keen scrutiny, suspicion and, and of sound processes and due process. So we think she's been absolutely correct in what she said. Yeah, and I guess uh, for listeners who are concerned about this, how can they engage with that parliamentary process? Is there an opportunity to, to voice opposition? Look, look, there is. They've missed, they missed the opportunity to uh, put in a written submission, but I'd certainly um, suggest to them that they should approach certainly in the first instance, progressive MPs, um, and I would include people like um, uh, the Greens, the Green Senators, some try the Labor people, and, and also um, people like Jackie Lambie and others. I mean, you've got to, got to try these people and explain what the concerns are that people do have, that um, this, is, this has got huge implications because the definition of emergency is clearly not there. And the other thing that worries us is that the legislation provides that the defence forces, including the foreign and reserve troops and police, foreign police, they have immunity from civil or criminal prosecution which might arise uh, from the actions in their emergency. So we think people should take these matters up with their MPs, with their senators and, and certainly the progressive ones. That was Bert Blackburn from the Campaign for International Cooperation and Disarmament, speaking there about ways to add your voice in opposition to the Defence Legislation Amendment bracket Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergencies end bracket Bill 2020, which is before the Senate at the moment. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced this week by me, AC, and brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. Thank you. To both Dr. Bino Kabmark and Bert Blackburn for speaking with us for the show. That's it for today. This show was produced at my home in Nam, Melbourne, and distributed across these stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network. You'll find the radioactive show online at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive, and you can get in touch by looking us up on Facebook. We'll finish with a song by Alice Skye for every year from her 2018 album, Friends with Feelings.
Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free and peaceful future. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.